Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And it's busy, busy, busy community as I get ready to catch my train and with the Deutsche Bahn in Germany crossing the Alps, think Hercule Poirot murder mystery. I may be hours and hours late, but late on Friday evening, I'll get into Bavaria, into Rotenburg, Obder Tauber, a very beautiful picturesque town where my children, Matilda, and Samuel will live, and I will spend a week with them, also seeing clients, and also beginning the PR campaign for the book. So busy stuff going, but want to keep things going for us as we move along. There's an awful lot going on today um, in terms of reading things, if you have the time. There's a great piece in Real Clear World by uh, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley about China, uh, where China stands, and why we should be more concerned about Taiwan than we are. As you know, Brands, Beckley, and I are the three leading proponents of China as a peaking power, that China not making it is the reason that we ought to worry about what's going on. Not that it's going to uh, dominate the United States, but that it's going to come short. And countries that come short become dangerous, like Imperial Germany not overtaking the British Empire, Imperial Japan not overtaking the United States. That its very peaking power quality makes it dangerous. They might decide it has to either use its army or lose its advantage. And there's an, it's an excellent piece with a lot of statistics on the region. Nothing new in terms of analysis, but deep, deep research. And I commend that piece to you today. And then the other bit of news that we're not going to talk about, though we could, I was, I was spoiled for choice with this one, um, is Europe and the incredibly awful numbers, which I've mentioned in passing. European cheerleaders are pathetic. And we're now down to saying things like, well, it's stable. European growth rates are stable. They certainly are at nothing. Uh, remember that in the last 15 years, European GDP has only grown 9%. American GDP has grown 86%. That's all you need to know. Europe is a, st is, is a stagnant, economically sclerotic, top-heavy, bureaucratic, work-shy, demographic nightmare. Uh, without a common foreign policy and a common army, it's still a great power, certainly, but the least of the great powers. And we could have spent time on that. But I thought I'd do something positive. Because, again, the problem with the business, political risk, is that the very name is the problem, is that it skews to the negative. How do we avoid calamities from happening? And that's certainly part of the job, firefighting and helping our business uh, clients avoid disasters. But there are also opportunities out there. And so even the name political risk is misleading. It should be risk and opportunity. As you know, I think India is the best news on the planet. When I ran out of good things to say, I mentioned that a tripolar world with India as the third superpower, which looks likely to happen over the next century, is something we should all be very happy about and keep our eye on. And really, the balance of forces in the Indo-Pacific has moved in America's direction, not because the United States is so incredibly clever and Bismarckian, but because Xi Jinping has made mistakes. We underestimate the mistakes that our enemies often make. And so this is a, a thing to keep in mind. The other thing is that we spend a lot of time looking at, at patterns that don't necessarily play out, good and bad. We follow events and we see dots and we connect them and then we see if those dots become a pattern or if they're just that dots that aren't connected or even if they are connected have limited efficacy. And I thought we'd follow one of these dots from the beginning now and see where it takes us. And it may well take us nowhere. That's a lot of what we do 
is that we look at what's going on. We have a couple dots. They go nowhere. But when we say we, we're keeping our eye on something, that's shorthand at the firm for we're going to see if this is a pattern, if this changes the trajectory of a country or a region, or if it's just that, dots. If it's a couple positive dots in, in a negative tra trajectory, or vice versa, a couple negative dots in a positive trajectory. And you have to keep that in mind. And that's the fascinating part of the job. Following leads, they don't all pan out like a good Agatha Christie, but some of them do. And at the moment, there are a couple dots in the Middle East that, that miserable as the Middle East is, there are a couple positive dots in this overall negative trajectory. And so we and the staff are keeping our eye to see if these dots amount to something more. If they change the trajectory of the Middle East, or if they're just that, dots. And you work them, and you keep your eye on them, and you see. But I want to share this with you, and this seemed like a great example of what the firm does day to day for us as a community to follow. And so what are these chinks of light in the Middle East, the gloomiest region in the world, the graveyard of American presidencies? Well, two interesting things have happened recently. Um, the Saudis have quietly recently said that they would be willing to accept a political commitment from Israel to create a Palestinian state rather than anything more binding in a bid to get the pact approved with Washington before the U.S. presidential election. Remember, we've said, and I think rightly, that the reason Iran gave seed money to Hamas, which started the Gaza war, was that Iran sees its three major enemies coming together, that because of Donald Trump's founding of the Abram Accords, which says, in essence, let's get around the Palestinian issue, which sidelines anything good from happening, and instead, let's worry about Iranian adventurism, which really is the motive force of what needs to be protected in the region. And this led to an open, a dip, this unblocked the diplomatic logjam of a couple generations. And suddenly you have Bahrain and UAE, Gulf states, formally agreeing to recognize Israel. Uh, you have Sudan, you have Morocco. Uh, you, and so there's movement in the region. Now, Trump's very creative policy here, derided at the time, but really worked. And most importantly, everybody who knows anything about the Middle East knows the UAE and Bahrain, the smaller Gulf states would never agree to have done this with Israel unless the Saudis had winked this through. The, the ultimate prize here was Mohammed bin Salman, de facto the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, de facto the ruler of Saudi Arabia, wants to get this deal done, wants a formal deal between the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia along the lines that Israel would be recognized by the Saudis, that would open up Israeli investment, for the Saudis' efforts under Vision 2030, their very ambitious program to move away from dependence on oil um, in all kinds of ways to really transform the kingdom and having Israeli technology, having Israeli business acumen and finance would really help this process. The two already are cooperating quietly behind the scenes over intelligence over their common enemy, Iran, and the Saudis want an American security guarantee with Iran in the region to blunt Iranian adventurism. And this was the rough deal. And from an Iranian point of view, this is a catastrophe. Your three greatest enemies are getting their act together and formalizing an alliance. This is not what you want. Hence the seed money to Hamas and hence the Gaza war. So up until now, the, the Iranians have been successful because the war in Gaza has so inflamed the Arab street that Mohammed bin Salman can't move ahead with the deal. And that's what the Iranians want. That's the big strategic prize. That's what lies beneath the Gaza war. And this week, 
The Saudis made it clear, though, quietly but insistently, that they're still open to a deal. That, yes, the Palestinian issue has to be addressed, but not fully. And this was up to now a veto. Up until now, it had been assumed that the Saudis would only accept this deal with Israel, even though it suits them to the ground, if there were a full Palestinian state created. And so, in other words, there would be no deal. But this week, the Saudis said they would be willing to accept a political commitment from Israel to create a Palestinian state, ultimately, rather than anything more binding. And this is an effort to get this deal done while Joe Biden is still in the White House ahead of the American election. This is a good deal less firm than demanding a Palestinian state, which certainly in the aftermath of the bad feeling over Gaza isn't going to happen in the near future. And if that had been the case, Iran would have succeeded in its strategic objective. It may still succeed in its strategic objective, but the Saudis have lessened the asking price despite the Arab street being entirely, rabidly, pro-Gaza, pro-Hamas even. Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, says, I don't care. It's in our interest to cut this deal. So if the Israelis commit to a Palestinian state at the end of the Gaza war, we're still open to offer to do the deal. That is movement. That is interesting. That is a chink of light in the Middle East. It doesn't mean it goes anywhere. At present, Bibi Netanyahu wouldn't accept the deal because if he were the right wing of his coalition would collapse. We're back to the Kafka novel of Bibi Netanyahu's existence. The coalition would collapse. But what if Netanyahu falls from power immediately after the war, as is quite possible, given the polling numbers and the fact that in Israeli political tradition, if you fall short on security matters, you're gone, whoever you are. Even Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan, you're out if you make this mistake. And so Bibi's days could well be numbered. A new government led by someone like Benny Gantz, who's the most popular politician in Israel at the moment, you could see Gantz committing to an ultimately to a two-state solution and the Palestinian state, and then the deal would be on the cards. So there's hope yet. That's all it is, is hope. But there's hope yet for a deal between the Saudis, the United States, and Israel. Um, And so Iran has not yet entirely quite succeeded in stopping its three enemies, the great Satan, the lesser Satan, and Saudi Arabia, the champion of the Sunni, whereas the Iranians are the the champion of the Shia. They haven't yet quite succeeded in putting this to bed and destroying uh, this alliance that would be directed against them. And that, of course, is good news. So there's that going on, which is interesting. And then the other interesting thing is that one of the demands that Hamas has made Uh, For the ceasefire that we're talking about, again, we're not sure if that's going to happen. It's merely a process being negotiated in Qatar. CIA Director William Burns is involved in the toing and froing between uh, Hamas and uh, Qatar and the United States and the Israelis. But one of the demands being made is that Marwan Barghouti be released from jail. And this is a name that none of you will probably know who, you know, have day jobs. But Barghouti is in essence the Michael Collins of the Palestinian movement. People compare him to Nelson Mandela, but I think Michael Collins is a better uh, comparison. Collins, of course, was the Irish revolutionary uh, who helped found the the IRA, uh, who led the Irish movement for independence against the British, but then committed to a deal whereby the the Irish Free State, as it was known, Ireland, uh, was created except for the northern counties, which had a Protestant majority, and Collins said, well, better to have half a loaf 
the no loaf at all, cut the deal with the British, was reviled for doing so and ultimately assassinated for doing so, even though he birthed uh, the birth of the state of Ireland. And Bargudi, like Collins, is in an interesting position as both a conciliator and as being respected by the hard men who have the guns. Without the guns falling silent, there's no deal uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The ultimate deal is land for peace. The Israelis need to get something out of this. That's what the college kids don't seem to fathom beyond the fact that they don't know any history, which is that the Israelis in any deal have to get something. They're the stronger partner in the deal. If they don't get peace, there'll be no trade for land, nor should there be. Bargudi is the only Palestinian leader who can give peace, can guarantee peace, because he is well-regarded and the hard men with the guns in the Palestinian movement. Although he's a member of Fatah, which is seen as the relatively more moderate group, certainly compared to Hamas, and is a senior member of Fatah, the group founded by Yasser Arafat and now running the West Bank um, under Abu Mazen, the incredibly ineffectual rule of Abu Mazen, Bargudi, 20 years ago, um, was the spearhead of the first and second Intifada. The first Intifada was largely peaceful, the second much more violent. He was uh, captured by the Israelis and convicted of directly participating in terrorist acts where five individuals were killed, sentenced uh, to life in prison for murder. Uh, but if there were an election today, and there was recently a poll done, and Bargudi would still win. He's at about 47% Hania. The head of Hamas would come second at about 42, and Abu Mazen, a pathetic single-digit follow-up, a bridesmaid in, in the scenario. But even though he's been in jail for 20 years, Bargudi is still the most popular Palestinian leader. And that is important because if he, his popularity is founded upon he was running the second intifada, he led the resistance lately. Um, Power from a Palestinian point of view, he led the second intifada, even though it was violent. So the hard men appreciate and respect him, and yet he's a moderate member of Fatah who says in a matter-of-fact voice, yes, Israel exists, there's nothing I can do about that. It certainly does exist. It will continue to exist. And so it's best that we cut a deal recognizing, in essence, a two-state solution. Really, Bargudi is the only guy I can think of who can, in a Michael Collins way, deliver both the moderates and the harder-edged folks to reach a common deal together. He's the only one who can do that. And he's the most popular man that if he were let out of jail, he would be certainly uh, a favorite to be the next leader of the Palestinian movement, Fatah. But Hamas would also listen to him uh, to cut a deal. And Hamas is demanding his release from prison. From an Israeli point of view, this would be a good thing, I think. Because while he's been in jail, among other things, Bargudi has learned to speak Hebrew. He's studied Israeli history. Um, he spent his time thinking through how the, such a deal would work. And the very fact that the one man deliver a settlement from the Palestinian point of view. And remember, that's what's been lacking all the time. You have to do a deal with someone who can make the deal stick. Again, and the, going back to Northern Ireland in that situation, the key fact of the deal um, was simple. You need it. Forget Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams is for old grandmas in Boston to give money to Sinn Féin and thus the IRA. It's Martin McGinnis who mattered. He was the leader of, of, of the IRA. He controlled the hard men. And McGinnis had to agree to a deal for that deal to matter, for there to be peace. Bargudi is in a similar position. He seems to be willing to come to the table, and yet he can bring the hard men with him. 
Without bringing the hard man with him, there's no point in having a negotiation. And the frustrating thing for the last couple generations about Israeli-Palestinian issues is there's been no one to do a deal with. You have to cut a deal with another human being, and, and, and that hasn't happened up until now. If Barghouti were to be released from jail, again, it doesn't mean that we're there, but there's at least the hope that there are new pieces on the board that might, might, might get you to a better deal in the Middle East. And so both these things, the Saudis soft-pedaling the terms over a Palestinian state and the possible release of the Michael Collins of the Palestinian movement, Marwan Barghouti, both these things um, really are interesting and bear following. It doesn't mean that they'll amount to anything, but it means if you do political risk, it's time to keep our eye out for a possible upside. There might just be chinks of light in the Middle East. Thank you very much. Fun to do this one today. I'm about to talk um, to friends of ours uh, from the Network Forum, Andrew Barman, an old colleague and friend, about doing a war game uh, for them in Warsaw in June. And so that's up next on the agenda. And uh, then I'm going to talk to John uh, Goodnight, my Sancho Panza, about our trip to New York and about going to Washington, who we're going to see and preparing the content for the speech and the PR campaign to follow. So a busy an important day. Wanted to share this one with you ahead of that. For those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. So many of you have, and we're very, very grateful. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70, which is all that we're asking uh, for me to continue to do so many of these and make this into a mini newspaper, which is exactly what it's becoming. And I'm gratified by that. Love doing these. Love community. And we need $70 or about the price of one of my espressos a day to make this work. So please do go ahead and do that. And again, last best hope, things are going great. And we're about to start the PR campaign. I'm very, very excited to make this book hopefully matter historically and politically. So many of you have ordered it, but please now is the time to be evangelical. Tell any of your friends who are interested. It's easy to buy on Amazon, wherever you are. And now's the time to move that up the charts over the next couple of weeks. So with all that in mind, Here's to you all, and I will talk to you again, hopefully, before I head off on Friday. And I think the last one, I've, I've finally decided on an album. Uh, we're going to look at the legend of Sid Barrett and the first The Pink Floyd album, as they were known then, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is different than anything else they did before. Although I like the later stuff, which was operatic and had bombastic and played around the world, the quintessential Englishness of Piper at the Genius, the limited but profound genius of Sid Barrett, I think merits a discussion. So look forward to sharing that with you. And we'll continue doing these as I sit in my very nice hotel, the Hotel Mittemeyer in beautiful Rotenberg, Albert Tauber, while I see clients and see the kids. Take care, everybody, and have a great day.